and welcome to the Dice to Screaming Podcast. Wah! Wah! It's Mike what and Randy in the morning. Oh yeah, it is. It's the AM drive time shift, yeah. Yeah, coming at you Ooh. real early. It's the, like... The Dawn Jungle. Dawn Patrol. <laughs> yeah, this is your drive time DJs of podcasting. No, no, I do us oh. too much kindness. Sure. We are the forbidden ninja pirate romance the internet didn't ask for. But delivered nonetheless? Oh, yeah. Geez. Yeah. Pirate ninja romance. <laughs> Man, uh, just cringe, cringe, cringe. Yeah, oh. it's cringes all the way through. I came for the cringe. Oh. I stayed for the jigga jiggas. Oh. Well, yeah, so we're doing a little early this time, but that's all right. We're uh, well caffeinated and we're ready to go. So we're going to start right off the bat by getting into next week's podcast. We have a lot, to, uh, we have a little bit to cover. So we're just going to go ahead and consult with the Machaomancer. That's right. He is repaired. He divines the future by gazing into swords or knives. Careful. And whip with caution. He's playing with sharps. He doesn't run with them but he does gaze into them thoughtfully. Mm. And in the near future, he sees Castle Amber. Oh, wow. Yeah, module micro-examination of one of the yeah, great expert, classics X3, of the expert set. X3, I think. Yeah. And X3. well worth it. Uh, Castle Amber was a longtime favorite of mine. It was one of the first modules after Keep on the Borderland that I ever got my paws on. Yeah, it's X2, my bad. Ah, X2. Well, but X1 was Isle of Dread. Correct. Correct. Okay. So, yeah, it was like the second expert module. This was the second time we'd gotten a peek at what expert play with it. Yeah, and it was gorgeous. Glorious. I, I got to say, it's one of the weird wonders of gaming because unlike many of the dungeon crawls or outdoor exploration or, you know, familiar styles of module play that like we think of as typical this one was something different it's a very strange manor okay a, a big noble house full of people not everything is your enemy but very few friends are to be found uh, everything was nebulous you, you find yourself wandering in this place trying to find a way to get home and this is the only place you can explore to accomplish that greater goal. Uh, and oh, what perils and wonders and curios await you in Castle Amber. So, all right, yeah, yeah. we'll be taking a deep dive into that one. So uh, bring your scuba gear, because this one's <laughs> going to be a long one. And speaking of long ones, uh, yeah, we've got, uh, I get, got a little feedback on Q1, and I think uh, a big portion of our examination it seemed like we uh, tried to either micro-focus or over-focus. And I think one of the big things is that module was just so much packed into it. I don't think that there's a meteor module out there at that time until later. But, uh, yes, I mean, this is before the Manual of Planes. There's a few um, things about adventuring on the other planes in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes. But there isn't a whole lot of material out there. This was your first real jump deep jump into another plane per se you know you had had like uh, later uh temple of elemental evil would give you kind of a precursor and we'll talk about that in the grand, grand scheme of things but you had the quasi planes or the yeah the quasi elemental planes the para elemental planes 
oh, uh, yes, they did show up eventually. Uh, you know, they, they hadn't been fully fleshed out yet. Uh, but the idea of something that exists beyond even the, like, tidy world. Yeah, the very platonic. You know, I mean, player handbook cosmology aside uh, and DM guide cosmology aside. Uh, here was an introduction to something that said that there are an infinite variety of universes out there. Multiverse theory long before the era of Rick and Morty. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think that we got caught up in the ether winds of the planes on that one. But it's still a good episode. I liked it. Uh, I think we hit all the things that we were excited about. Well, it was certainly a love affair for the module itself because, uh, frankly, like it was the final culmination of all the hard work that people had put into the modules before it uh, and when we ran that series uh, we ran it from beginning to end i mean you know from level one all the way to the top uh capping out most of us between 12th and 14th level uh, and oh what brutality i mean oh, yeah. there were some casualties along the way uh players like because the length of time involved in doing so many modules to get to a big final ultimate battle against an evil god um we actually had like a changing cast mm -hmm. you know the the party that got to the ending was not the same makeup as the party that started uh, no, was, well, except with a, a few of the exceptional oh, oh well uh, with the exception of, a, of the hardcore few yeah me. yeah a a serious core uh, was there for the entire thing uh, but we had a number of people come and go uh, so the final battles were fought with a you know pretty different party makeup than it began with and that's part of the point is that a module series that long a campaign level event uh, it took an incredible length of time to complete and it felt like you had all gone on a journey a Lord of the Rings-esque, yeah. you know, once you set foot one foot further and you're farther than you've ever been away from home, and it's going to be a long while before you get back to your comfortable space. <laughs> yeah, oh, and boy. one of the other uh, comments I heard was uh, it the module itself seemed a little gimmicky, and it's true. It's the last part, yeah. There was a... If, what we're hitting on is common tropes like that were... It wasn't uncommon to you in a dungeon back then to kind of run into a magmatized uh, wall. Oh, would yeah. Screw over uh, player characters, and then rust monsters would come out. <laughs> oh, but oh, it was irony. all at once. And so, if you weren't ready, if you weren't at your top of your game and capable of dealing with these things, you were in for a world of hurt. It wasn't going to be easy. No, it and wasn't. what it meant was is that normally the the brutes in plate who would. Um, and including the, yours truly, Elf Fighter Magic User, I got stuck to that wall. <laughs> if it wasn't that the fact that we had other characters in light armor and no armor, well, I, that had to carry the fight themselves, and you know, I remember Brock Stormbrow traditionally wore chainmail, but he had the belt that gave him like super strength. Yeah, you can you pull so, yourself off. You know, like I was able to resist being dragged onto the wall, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the benefits of it. That's the one where like a magic user drink. pulled up Tenzer's transformation and went stabomatic with. Uh, oh my gosh! On the bugbears. Oh wait, <laughs> wasn't that uh, Odric? Oh my god, Odric the pyromancer. Yeah, you'd never let him like 
get a fire spell off in an enclosed area. Collateral damage was not even in his lexicon. <sighs> but great with Tensor's transformation. Yeah, Tensor's transformation is the first time I'd ever <coughs> go crazy stabomatic and dagger wielding nightmare. This bugbear's like, oh, look, it's a guy in robes. Oh, that's what you think. <laughs> Murder in his eyes. It's like Psycho all over again. <laughs> Odric, what's your secret? I'm always angry. So Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a couple of highlights that came to me after the podcast. I thought I'd share those with you. Yes, but lots of fun in that. And definitely don't let us, if I say gimmicky, don't take it the wrong way. It just means gimmicky in the fact that Hey, it was understood at the time that this was a module that would have very high-level players going into it. And to challenge very high-level players, you got to drop the BS, okay? If, yep. if you've just handed a bunch of newbies level 8 characters, they're not going to exercise the same level of skill in making use of all their resources. So, yeah, okay, maybe having the kid gloves on and playing nice is cool. However, if you have people who have crawled their way up and been through a great many games to get to this point. They have a lot of experience. They know how to get themselves out of most of the regular kinds of trouble. And you've got to throw them a surprise. Yeah. And as a DM, I understand it and I approve. I don't I, I still think that as part think of my shining moment as a DM was uh, using those three groups of drow, male and female. Uh, in perfect tandem, which splits the party up to try to target different locations uh, and goodness help you if you're a warrior because uh, honestly the only way to get to them is to plow your way through crowds of zombies which and are easy okay blade barriers easy kill, and flame strikes oh but, my gosh yeah it's easy to get through the zombies but they're there to delay you while you are forced to work your way through outrageous harm walls of ice yeah it was just yeah, it's meant to be hard. Not every situation I had to use is almost every. I know I was already halfway down on spells. I used everything I had just to get through that and look and get us through that encounter. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, quaffed a potion of flying and the, went... <laughs> the blade barrier. That's what it's like to be a fork going through a, a, a garbage disposal. Garbage disposal. <laughs> yeah, that, or it's going into my favorite form of death battle. <laughs> anyway. Oh man! Nope. All right. So sometimes I had fun doing that review, but like now we're launching into Samurai Movie Night, which we waited for for a long time. Yeah, we had to get this one right. So hopefully, and frankly, right. we argued a little, like not deep hostility, but like we had to shave stuff off and like replan this, uh, you know, a, a number of times because they're just things that didn't make the cut even though we wanted them there and other things that, you know, it's a tough call, like adding Zatoichi. It's not a true samurai tale, but it hinges so heavily on samurai culture and Yakuza culture that it's kind of included by default because it's... Well, it was the same way that I caught my first uh, glimpse of Seven Samurai on Kung Fu Theater. Yeah. On TV 47, we talk about around here. It was the UHF channel, long story short. They had a Saturday morning. Uh, they had a long litany of things that they had to fill up. They had a long gap. So they would put things like, they would just play movies. 
And of course, Akira Kurosawa's Masterpiece Seven Samurai was on there, and that's the first time I had really caught it in its entirety. I'd seen little bits and pieces here and there. But um, well, I'm going to start off with a couple of things. First of all, cult cultural appropriation. We're going to address that, yes, the Orient we're going to be talking about Oriental Adventures, Samurai films, and uh, John Belushi's bad take on Samurai. Now, I still think it's rather funny because the irony of John Belushi's portrayal of Samurai Taylor. Well, this sleeve is over. Samurai Delicatessen. Yep, Samurai Delicatessen. I, I never liked those that much, mostly because, like, everything was this, like, if there is any flaw, like, all crises end in, like, threatening to commit suicide <laughs> to get yeah. off the hook uh, and then getting people to forgive them. So that's, that. it's incredibly not Samurai. Uh, however... The way he walked, the way that he presented himself, he studied a lot, of, watched a lot. You can of those. tell he watched Yojimbo. Yes. Okay. You in the motions, in the stances, the facial expressions. Uh, he did a lot using the eyes rather than the rest of the face. You know, uh, which <laughs> uh, is characteristic of the film. Uh, to speak of appropriations. Uh, it's important to remember that at the time there was no such thing. There was just incredibly blatant racism and isolationism, and there was such hatred of all things foreign that at the time, people who were not hostile to learning anything about somewhere else were thrilled. Like, oh my God, something about somewhere else. How cool, you know, uh, breaking out of the um, sterilized pastel like 1950s early 60s monoculture that dominated u.s uh, perceptions was incredibly wonderful and so by that time that had taken hold for a while by the time we were kids you know a lot of products from overseas were available and some of them were these outstanding media products right and some people feel are contentious but Let's be honest. I may have started in a bad place, but I got quickly out of it. These are products of the actual culture that they put on the marketplace and hoped people would be receptive to. And oh my gosh, were we ever. Now I'm going to save this for a later, uh, when we do a rendition on Oriental Adventures, we'll talk about that. But I'm just going to briefly address it here, and it will be brief. Uh, Oriental Adventures is, I find, is a very flawed product, but... There's a reason for its flaws. It wasn't intentional to be racist or anything like that. It was more of a recreation of uh, feudal Japan than it was the same type of recreation that Dungeons and Dragons was of Western Europe. So while they tried to be faithful in a way of like transplanting samurai in the form of knights, they kind of failed in a way because they went too far feudal Japan, which wasn't the scope of Oriental Adventures. You were yeah. just, it's just like saying like, okay, we're playing in the Carolingian era of Western Europe versus the uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, Bretonian era. Yeah, they did not comprehensively make different eras available from beginning to end. They, they sort of uh, kind of had to fast forward and like select a kind of narrower zone uh, yeah. to just do a supplement book. Uh, I, I gotta say, it has glaring flaws that I, I think we've all in fact yeah. I think I believe we have discussed them Brief, yeah briefly I think if we ever we touched another... upon these before 
Uh, but aside from the flaws, like I said then, I'm just going to reiterate uh, here briefly, it was a love letter written by awkward teens. <laughs> so Yeah, um, where Ruins and Ronin is also one we're going to be referencing. So we're going to be salting some gaming stuff from Oriental Adventures, Ruins and Ronin, making some comparisons as we go through. So anyway, without further ado, let's get launch. started. Um, what is going to be our first one? We're going to be doing three tonight. If so. I recall correctly, we were going to open, we were just going to rip the band-aid off on Akira Kurosawa, who is... Hey, we got, we're not gonna yeah, we're not gonna go too far into Kikura Kosawa because that's all the oxygen gone. It's the it's the Grandmaster. Uh there is such a body of work. There were so many movies that were vying for this. But I, I think we sort of came to Yojimbo as like the good opener. because uh, Hidden Fortress and Throne of Blood and some of the other magnificent Yeah. Yeah. Oh Ran. Yeah. And uh Sorry, I, I'm not trying. And of to course, the Seven Samurai. There's just a huge litany of things that were so intensely influential. But Yojimbo makes a nice opening point. Uh, it yeah, only has this... one other follow-up movie, which was uh, Sanjuro. Yeah, which is the further adventures of the bodyguard, the Yojimbo. Yeah, because he really didn't have a name. Yeah, well, he he and had if a you name. Notice, there's never, a Western allegory to. Uh, a fistful of dollars with Clint Eastwood and uh, Sergio Leone. Yeah, Sergio Le Leone's uh, production of, you know, for a few dollars more, a fistful for a few, of dollars. You know, uh, dollars. Fistful of dollars. This yeah. was a direct steal. And of course, the one comparison is neither guy was the man with the no name. What was his name? Did they ever say it? I don't think so. Uh, however, worth noting, uh, Sergio Leone had to relinquish the rights to all profits from Fistful of Dollars in Asia. Uh, all of that went to Akira Kurosawa because... Like, he stole his movie. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't it's even like credit him. Shot for shot remake. You know, Seven Samurai got uh, the Magnificent Seven, but John Ford was at least uh, giving a complete nod. That, yeah. Know, this is from a great uh, director over in Japan. There was no attempt to conceal this as an original product. Uh, at least the Magnificent Seven was straight up like, have you seen The Seven Samurai? Well, then you might like this. I've, I've made a Western version of The Seven Samurai. And it's like no attempt to, like, if it didn't wind up in a courtroom because there was no attempt yeah. to go, this is purely my intellectual property, which I alone have developed. I have no idea how anybody could have formed the opinion that like these seven guys might in any way be defending a village like in some other film. Yeah. So to turn yeah. full cinema nerd on you, I love the swagger right off the get. The like it's the air in Japan. There's a word for it. I don't quite uh, have enough tip of my tongue. Shame on me. I was going to do it. There's a season where there's just wind that just strikes the island, and during that time, everybody just kind of hunkers down. You know, it's after the harvest and everything's blowing around, and it's kind of a, a morose time right before winter, and. Um, Oh. Here he comes, just walking in. Yeah, with the swagger of a dude who is absolutely not intimidated by anything. And that's an important thing to note. Toshiro Mifume delivers his performance as the stranger, the man with no name, who is actually Sanjuro. Sanjuro, but, but Yojimbo. Yeah, as Yojimbo, a, a bodyguard for hire, a ronin, a former samurai who now masterless is just looking for work. 
and he stumbles into a bad town, which you can tell it was Akira Kurosawa's idea on how to show it was a bad town. Was as the guys coming into town, there's a dog with a human hand in its mouth, and you know that's the that's the little hint that like oh, there's a den of scum somewhere nearby, and. Quickly, this turns out to be true. There are two rival gangs. Some of you may recognize this from the Bruce Willis movie *Last Man Standing*, which was also a playoff of a, a perfect both movies. It is a near shot-for-shot shot remake of *Yojimbo*, uh, where he plays both parties off against one another, uh, resulting in the death of all of the bad guys, uh, and him walking out the last man standing. Well, Sanjuro is about to do the same thing putting himself up as a bodyguard. Like, hey, I can tip the balance in your favor. And then it's just all backstabs and double crosses and whispered secrets with the townsfolk who can't wait to see these, you know, criminal... Yeah, the people who are being held in thrall into these two gangs. Yeah. And one of them has a pistol, a revolver. Yes. And again, this is one of those major points that... Uh, uh, when one of them has this incredible advantage uh, against, you know, the majority of people cannot afford one of these rare implements of destruction. Uh, he's got a huge advantage. How do you overcome that? You know, this is something that, like, they didn't really do a lot of that in the samurai flicks of the day. Uh, that, you know, like... The gun is the death of the samurai, to be honest. Yeah, and this is the last gasp of, you know, like the, the Ronin versus a single pistolier. So. And, you know, uh, the movie itself, um, the use of black and white cinematography can be overdone. I mean, we talk about Ingmar Bergman. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, he mastered it. But then everybody tried to do be him afterwards, and it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Only in Seven. Oh in, dear. Mystery Science Theater Three K doing in, uh, a joke by Ingmar Bergman between Oli and Seven. When you're out of slits, you're out of here. <laughs> Done as if Ingmar Bergman had directed it. You got to see it. It's on YouTube. Look it up. Anyhow, well, in any case. Uh, the black and white cinematography shows the stark contrast. And this is really well done. Of course, that's also due to Orson Welles. But... Long, clean shots of empty streets focused on, you know, uh, like the, the wind, the, you know, like dusty breeze rolling through the streets. And uh, all his cinematography was out of this world. It, like it literally influenced generations of As directors. He's walking down the pathway or into the street at the confrontation, you are drawn inextricably to the singular figure of Yojimbo, just striding up with his arms tucked into his sleeves. Almost casually. You know, what he's doing is very low-key to him. Uh, and that's also another important note. He's dealing with Yakuza, which are, you know, criminal gangsters. They, you know, run gambling operations. Uh, in some cases, there are old-fashioned Yakuza who are, like, relatively honorable. They, they have a code by which they live, and violating it is seen as shameful. However, in this case, it is a trained martial combatant dealing with a crowd of thugs. And 
you know, it's only the arrogance of the people around them that makes them not realize that, like, these are, you know, plump guppies uh, trying to figure out who's the biggest fish. And they're dealing with a shark that is not here to kid around. Like, that should have been their first warning. If anybody had been self-aware in that movie and gone, oh, yeah, that's right, we're a bunch of thieving chumps. We we are actually, like, a bunch of wussies. You know, like, we, we need a whole gang of us to get anything done. This one lone dude is probably better than all of us combined. Yeah, so, yeah that, that self-awareness was lacking, but that's also kind of the lesson in some of these movies is that, like, yeah, man, that arrogance is going to be your undoing because you've never seen what happens when a guy who is truly trained, I mean, with dedication and absolute certainty, you've never seen what that person can do. Yeah, and, and during the part, Yojimbo is beat up by the gangs and almost killed. And then uh, the old innkeeper uh, takes him out into the uh, area, and he's at a woodcutter shack. Hides him in a in an old temple, and he's just sitting there, just throwing. A, there's this leaf bouncing around, floating around in the corners, and he just takes that uh, throwing knife. Yeah, he's got to heal up for a while. He just takes a throwing knife, and all he does is just practice hitting that fluttering leaf again and again and <clears throat> this leads us to the fact that if you ever need to know why called shots are important Yojimbo certainly demonstrates that because he takes his knife throwing skill and of course they think he's going to draw his sword and charge him nope he does the unexpected he gets close enough and then hurls his dagger right into the arm of the pistolier <laughs> and completely takes him by surprise and uh, then he then he draws the katana and wades in yeah, he starts mowing him down once he's dealt with the primary threat. Like, it's like the gloves are off. <laughs> so, okay, your call shots, it. anybody says, oh, you can't do it. I would always say that, like, Yojimbo makes a strong argument that uh, call shot systems or hit locations are important. Again, don't yeah. let them override your whole thing. I mean, obviously, there's some systems that do it better. We all know call uh Call of Cthulhu doesn't have specific locations, but it does have specific injuries, and RuneQuest does have a specific injury system to your location, but that's a different uh, elephant than, say, your standard Dungeons & Dragons or uh, OSE Kong. It's really good stuff, and you should always let players be inventive with it, and I think that that was one of the things, like, oh, man, when I saw him do that, and of course, I've seen uh, Fistful of Dollars before, with Clint Eastwood, uh, he had a completely different solution to the man with a rifle. When a man with a pistol meets a man with a rifle, and that pistol dies. Well, yeah, same difference. Did something unexpected. And yeah. uh, how you choose, and that's the thing that I think makes it kind of really uh, keen to us is that cleverness, that thinking outside the box, even though the expectations are already set that you can overcome it by just being a little bit more clever or thinking differently to solve problems makes it so unique to us and so beloved besides just the good cinematography that we talk about. And that's what we bring to these uh, discussions is that they influence us a lot, not as just uh, viewers and cinemaphiles, but also as gamers and dungeon yeah. masters. We have ripped off, you know, Kurosawa movies so many times and so many ways for gaming not for profit but if we had not seen these movies i think we would honestly be lesser creatives for it okay just 
the, the things that we would come up with, the things we would challenge players with, the scenarios, the NPCs, you know, the the surprise ally, uh, you know, I, a lot of these things, you know, we learned at the feet of the master. And we're super I think they would be very happy that they did their task, that they inspired people. Yeah, that, that's what it's all about. <laughs> they may not have planned on like, wait, you mean a bunch of people play this with pencil and paper around a table? Eh, okay, yeah, maybe not what they foresaw, but definitely huge cinematic influence and huge gamer influence. Yeah, uh, so any DM would do well to watch pretty much everything Akira Kurosawa ever directed. All right, well, let's take a break and come back at it after the break, and we'll uh, do two other films. All right, well, we'll launch into the Zatoichis. All right, so hang around, we'll be back. Yeah, the last note on Yojimbo um, oh, okay. is the music. Oh, the, the music for oh, yeah. his intro swagger. That horn section, that <laughs> the drums, you know, it just, uh, it's bombastic, it's in your face, and it has this arrogance to it. It captures perfectly the swagger that Toshiro Mifume was using as he you know, like just walks in, devil may care. Yeah. I'll figure it out, whatever it is, I got this. You know, that confidence. Uh, so yeah, definitely. Yojimbo, worth your time. Now, places that it can be found, I believe that one is actually on YouTube, but are you aware of it being presently on any other uh, services? I mean, that's um, not a tough one to find. Kurosawa's collection. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. Well, I'll put it up on the uh, old Facebook group. We'll put on the uh, links to that. But as for YouTube, YouTube can give you a large portion of the Zatoichi collection. Uh, All right, so yeah, we're going to turn to our next one, which is going to be, we're going to cover Zadoichi. Now, yeah. these were a series of films. And again, a little content warning here. A lot of people consider Zadoichi in the modern times to be ableist. And I'm not totally against that, but in the same type, I'd have to throw out my Daredevil comics and others to maintain certain parities with those ideas. I don't think it's really ableist. I think it's a unique view on somebody who's missing a sense who makes do. Well, it also routinely highlights the mean-spiritedness of uh, able culture, okay? Okay. It, um, <clears throat> go ahead, go ahead. Uh, people are perpetually uh, mocking or taking exploitative advantage, and, you know, Zatoichi... Uh, yeah, no holds barred conversation about it. He continually, you know, reminds like that. Well, one, he occasionally laments that you know so many people are so cruel, uh, that they're so unkind as to intentionally take advantage or to try to rip off someone just because they can't see. Uh, and he's also a haunting reminder to people that, hey. Uh, you may have grossly underestimated what you're dealing with. Like that. <laughs> uh, he is a true underdog. And it it may seem ableist to some, but I, I think that's people who are just upset by the fact that uh, a person who isn't blind is portraying someone who is blind and creating the illusion that they are incredibly competent at everything they do. Uh, 
Yeah, okay, it's an unrealistic expectation, but it's not without some very honest criticism of people's unethical and unfair behavior. Yes, it takes a deep look at that. I think that uh, before we really jump in, that uh, Zatoichi was uh, he was created by a Japanese novelist, uh, Ken Shimozawa, and uh, one of the enduring things in the uh, novels was his love of gambling. Yeah, he was a, a he was kind of an addict uh, about it. He couldn't. It was like okay, he, he heard the rattling of dice, and he couldn't. He would just start smiling. Oh, <laughs> I smell sake. You know, it, this is an anti-hero. Uh, unlike the classic samurai genre, what sets Zatoichi and the twenty-six movies thereof, twenty-four uh, of which I believe starred uh, the familiar. Uh, Shingo Katori, Katori, uh-huh. Shingo Katori. No, that's... that was that was the last one. Okay, yeah. And let's see, let's see. Actor uh, Shintaro Katsu. There was it the is the original one. Shintaro Katsu, uh, in like twenty-four of the twenty-six movies with uh, uh, director Beat Takeshi uh, performing as uh, Zatoichi once in the two thousand two Zatoichi movie. Um, and one other fellow stepping in once. Yeah, there was also a TV series that we're not even covering here. But right, and also this, this is huge. It ran Rucker Hauer also in '1962. Yeah, all the way to 1989 was the last movie with yep. Shinto and uh, Katsu. Yeah, the television series was around the, the 70s to the end of the 70s, and it also uh, there was an American version of Blind Fury with Rutger Hauer. If you've seen that one, that is heavily inspired oh. by Zatoichi, and they also homage that. Yeah, directly. There is no pretense whatsoever. Like, yeah, this is uh, how much I love the Zatoichi movies. They're the like, greatest. But uh, yeah, a blind guy who kind of seems like a buffoon at first because he's just he can't resist drink and gambling. But he also has the amiable way of getting through society, besides cutting people apart. Oh, yeah. He is not that he's simply, a masseuse. He's not a simple murderer, okay? He's not a samurai who goes looking for trouble. He's not a glorious character. He is a blind masseuse uh, in, in an era when, if you were blind, uh, it was believed that uh, you would make a good masseuse because you would you know, feel through your hands. You would pay attention and that you would understand better how to treat people, uh, you know, than a person who was sighted. Uh, and so uh, his name itself, uh, Zato Ichi, I mean, like his name as a person is Ichi, uh, and Zato is his lowly rank in the Guild of Masseuses, like the, the lowest rank you can hold. Uh, and he was sighted as a child went blind at the age of eight, struck by disease, uh, you know, lost, his, his parents had passed away, uh, and he became a masseuse, but he was also incredibly frustrated because having been sighted, he was then treated very shabbily by everyone uh, now that he was blind and he couldn't get over it. So he sought out somebody who was willing to teach him swordsmanship and he found a mentor and reluctantly convinced the guy to teach him. Yep. And, and he uses, oh a, he does not use a katana. He uses a cane sword, which is a, uh, a very Shikomi Zui, I believe it's pronounced. Anyway, it, it is not meant to be concealed. However, 
in this case, he does use his walking stick to feel out things with as his sword cane. And so he uses that. Also, he, in the novels, uh, said he was a uh, Yakuza himself for a number of years and killed a number of men, which he came to regret later when he lost his sight and had to seek penance. Yeah, the movies begin with a then, like, 26-year-old or 25-year-old uh, Zatoichi. Uh, and he's also very town. empathetic about people, downridden prostitutes, daughters sold into... The prostitute class. Uh, yeah, people being manipulated through debt, uh, being cheated and ripped off, being bullied. Uh, honestly, the wonder of Zatoichi is that no one is above villainy. Okay, there, right. there is uh, Zatoichi, this incredibly flawed individual, becomes the moral compass despite the fact that he is handicapped in many ways by his addictions to vice. Uh, you know, the, the gambling life, the uh, perpetual consumption of sake, you know, mm -hmm. smoking, drinking, and, you know, uh, swiving away whatever money he's got is one thing. But when you come right down to it, in spite of all those flaws, he is very protective of other people who have done nothing wrong. People who have no reason to be tormented uh, or violated or harmed are precious to him and he will literally throw himself into the grist mill of trouble over and over again to get other people out of harm's way much like daredevil yeah the man without fear he no he does not, lacking sight gives him one thing he has lost his flight reflex he no longer flinches from anything and that makes him, for many people, very disturbing to face in combat, especially trained samurai who do not know how to react to somebody who listens to every small thing around them when they are about to get into a fight. The clink of a sword in a scabbard, the flick of a wrist inside silk. He could hear those things and discern them as... He could even hear tension in tendons. Yeah, uh, the faint sounds of another person breathing or an unusually loud heartbeat. Uh, the, the telltale signs of somebody else uh, attempting to move quietly or hold still. Uh, the scent of someone perspiring nervously uh, or, you know, <laughs> uh, many times the other senses are highlighted in the Zatoichi movies as things that he makes greater use of than other people. Uh, now, probably worth mentioning, no one... Yeah, many people are above the law, but nobody is above Zatoichi when the lights are out. Because that's kind of the harsh lesson there, that, yeah, you can exploit and rob and murder and, you know, intimidate people all you want. Uh, right up until this guy wanders into town, and there's some things, like... But you can't do that. I'm the intendant. I'm the governor of this province. All your guards are dead. <laughs> you had to rob people. You had to be a jerk. As soon as the sun went down, this guy knocks the lights out and everybody's his equal in the dark. Right. And that's well, yeah, his home. He, the one scene where he cuts the candles out in the room. Now, it's also revealed later on that he's not totally blind. Oh, yeah. As an eight-year-old, he lost his sight to disease. 
uh, he can, you know, I mean, he can see shadows. But that's it. Yeah. That's it. Like, he doesn't have some magnificent level of sight or he, he hasn't been faking it all this time. He, you know, he can see forms, literally, you know, he, he can see a little. He knows when it's day or night. But that's about it. His real advantage is having spent years apprentice to a sword master so that he could handle himself in a fight and you know and he can't see it coming so he doesn't worry about it yeah that not gonna sweat over it <laughs> but when he hears it coming watch out he learned to have oh, yeah, very quick reflexes so, and it highlights a japan that like is split uh, constantly between the criminal underworld and you know, like high-handed nobility yeah. yeah, during the Edo period, it was very lawless. The central, the, the poor former Tokugawa shogunate had fallen, and they were put into a sort of shadowy semi-government where the state itself was still running. The, the machines of bureaucracy were still there, but there was no central authority anymore. There was no strict governance. There was kind of just an acceptance that this has gone on well enough. It'll continue going on until something changes and we're working. The change was monumental in the process, but we'll discuss that. I'll I'll give it a wrap up at that. I'm going to put a pin there. I would like to say also that as far as gaming value, the use of the blind fighting, uh, which appears proficiency in, uh, yeah, we really get our first look of proficiencies in Oriental adventures, but it's inclusion here is particularly noteworthy. Because I think it belongs squarely here with that inspired directly by Zadoji. I'm not. I can't say that for certainty. That's just speculation on my part. But I think that in the context of what we're talking about with movies and where when we had first started seeing Zadoji, it was again kind of in these uh, small um, niche environments, and then we became aware of it more when the VHS came out and. Uh, yeah, I knew nothing of it for many, many years um, I, until I like first saw uh, some discussion of it online uh, because, again, I was poking around Akira Kurosawa. Uh, and once you kind of open that up, uh, inevitably, when it comes to series of movies uh, that are extremely influential, you will run across Zatoichi. Uh, especially in like that it's honestly one of the only things in the genre with a blind swordsman you know that instead of a samurai it's a yakuza this is an almost michael moorcock-esque uh elric anti-hero like oh the rest of you have heroes who are big strapping samurai with a sword who kicks butt and they're totally lawful and they do always do the right thing I'm doing the opposite of that. <laughs> I'm having a low-down, dirty crook with a heart of gold <laughs> who somehow manages to do the right thing for the little guy because deep down inside, he hates a bully because he knows what it's like to be bullied. And so despite being a you know like heavy drinker and a chronic gambler and all, you know, <laughs> all these other things, he is... Yeah, the novelization really... A you, get a different, you get a different view because you're in the character's mind. Yeah. But yeah, he just he does. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I can't. I know I'm going to get His trouble. His humility most of the time yeah, he's like, is I, amazing. Uh, Shintaro Katsu oh, delivers these amazing performances. Oh. You know where he's just blushing and you know, oh gosh, uh, uh, where you know, like he's almost a great difference between classic samurai movies and what you will get in a Zatoichi movie is that where. Samurai movies spend most of their time 
uh, with characters who retain that stony-faced approach. Yes, the stoicism stoic. that comes of long years of training and social etiquette uh, that is required of them. It, it weighs on them. But in Zatoichi, you get the opposite once again. You get somebody who is incredibly emotive, whose face delivers a constant performance. He doesn't use his eyes like so, like Toshiro Mifume speaks volumes with just his eyes. Shintaro Katsu closes his eyes and yeah. lets the rest of his face do the work. It's an incredible piece of acting and it's absolutely to be respected. Not to mention the direction on most of these movies was excellent. So it, a few of them are in black and white and then the rest in color. And now we bring ourselves to a second offering also available on the Criterion Collection in yep. Blu-ray. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, um, if you want to see Yojimbo, you can get it on HBO Max streaming. Ah, you can excellent. see that, so that's the easy way, but I'll put that on there. But Zatoichi is also the Zatoichi Blind Swordsman is on Criterion. Now, Criterion also contains Lady Snowblood, which I, when we do Samurai Movie Night again, I will talk about. Very fond of Lady Snowblood. And yeah, uh, we should probably uh, throw in Hidden Fortress. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, so what I was thinking. Like, like, do you like Star Wars? Well, let's have a conversation. <laughs> let's have a, you might have a conversation here. But yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub, the Criterion Collection. It's um, six Blu-rays. It contains the entire run. It is not as the Americanized version, which was typically called the Baby Card Assassin series, or uh, the the Robert Houston involved version, which was Shogun Assassin. Shogun Assassin. Yes. Uh, Where it, it seemed like the only thing in that was the gratuitous amount of nudity and uh, blood. And if that's your thing, hey, I'm not here to shame you. Just saying that it. Reading the manga. Now, see, this is where we come from, is we came oh. into Lone Wolf and Cup from the manga. Now, originally the Frank Miller uh, first comic series, the ones we picked up. I was very conflicted uh, about this particular one because the movies uh, do not do the material justice. I am in love with the manga. Like, i just so impressed. It is... Lone Wolf and Cub is one of the great masterpieces of that entire genre. I would go so far as to say as there is no other manga product out there I have ever read that compares to it as a historical... Uh, yeah, it deconstructs the samurai fiction. genre completely. Oh. It shows almost every facet of Japanese life from um, rice farming. They have a whole story just about rice farming to the lives of the nobles inside their castles behind the closed doors and the relationships with their servants. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, just everything in between. And no holds barred, there is no blushes. I mean, it just basically tells everything going on. In you know, And in this is set two principal characters. And many people say, well, it's uh, Ido Ogami and his son. No, it, his son is literally Daigo. Daigoro. Daigoro, excuse me. It's just like Grogu is telling the story to you. You don't realize it, and that's what Frank Miller did, is that Daigoro was the one telling the story. Yeah. That's a, that's a take from Frank Miller. It wasn't the original intention. Later, we would get from Dark Horse the full compilation of those manga novels. Once again, you can still get them. And we were able to read them. But also, we saw the baby card assassins. But if you like The Mandalorian, we have a conversation about Star Wars. Yeah. Lone Wolf and Cub, again, you know, these are like themes that are of such potency. They're such, they're so relevant. They, they connect with people so well that in all three of these movies, 
uh, you know, that we have selected for this, they have had a ripple effect uh, and inspired other cinema uh, and other writers and other scenarios and inspired gamers. So yeah, that's why they're here. The Lone Wolf and Cub series, it's about a man who is the Shogun's executioner. His personal, ex the personal executioner for the Shogun. And his opponent is the elderly right hand or little hand of the Shogun. The yeah. one who accepts, or who sets the tone and keeps everything moving forward. The Lord of the Yagyu. Yagyu. Uh, and the Yagyu uh, are also responsible for being the Shogunate's personal assassins. When things don't work out right, he makes, they make them right. Yeah. If it can't be done by lawful means, the Yagyu will make sure that he mostly through anyway. blackmail, intelligence gathering, and then frame jobs. So now the the, right the Yagyu has like built a mega network. Now the the truth is that deep down in the core of his heart, uh, the elderly Lord of the Yagyu is not aiming for the Emperor's throne himself, but he foresees a day where the vast network that he has built will enable him at the time at some time of instability he will be the person who decides which direction the empire goes that like the the Yagyu will someday wear the hollyhock crest of the emperor that, that, like this will be their future they will ascend uh, in importance and become an imperial power now what stands in his way well anything that stands in his way he crushes or destroys you know he discreetly gets rid of and here is this incorruptible this perfect paragon of the, the samurai way, the emperor's executioner. Well, that's an irresistible target. You know, anything that makes him look inferior or less worthy by comparison draws his wrath. And assassins are sent, uh, and Ito Ogami manages to live because he is not just an, a samurai in name who has earned the right to hack off heads, okay? He is a dedicated master of his craft, a swordsman without peer. And they have not quite grasped what they're is dealing the, with. Is his uh, principal yes. antagonist. Retsudo of the Yagyu clan, the master of the Yagyu. He ends up losing his three sons to yeah. Ito Ogami's blade. Oh, that's it. Once Ito Ogami has been offended, he proceeds to swear vengeance eternally, in eternally. hell or in heaven. Yeah, he abandons the way of the samurai, technically. He selects the road to Mefume, the way of like the way of the demon road. Oh yeah, the way to hell. Like I'm going to hell to get what I want. And that means that he can be nice if he feels like it, but he's not bound by the rules of society or the rules of the samurai any longer. And people underestimate him constantly because they believe that he is still responding like a samurai. They haven't grasped yeah, his commitment. Man. They think, oh, a samurai would never do that. But this guy will. But to kind of narrate it back to the movies, yeah. um, the movies have their own culture. And we talk about the manga so much. Check it out, obviously. that That's a journey so worth it. you're going to have to do on your own. But they summarize pretty much the plot of the books into a dozen films that were fully displayed in Japan and three films that were put into here. Now, we're not going to cover the American ones. I'm going to cover the, the uh, ones in Japan. There's a unique... Uh, aspect of them. Yes, the comics were extremely violent. Oh, I'm and sorry, we, it was a half dozen, wasn't it? 
the half dozen. Yeah, but they're on different. They're all the. I think there's six CDs all together, and there's oh. twelve episodes of some. Oh. But maybe you're right. I, I thought it was. It's been a while, but in any case, yeah. Right. So <clears throat> the films themselves are extreme. Are are often seen as sometimes goofy in their violence because while well, they're trying to recreate specific scenes from the comic book, and it doesn't really translate. The move, the music too, has often been criticized as sometimes very quirky or period oriented. Which um, a good way to put it is samurai porn music. You're expecting okay. a guy with a pizza to show up and a woman with a leaky somebody boss. order the extra sausage. Oh, yeah, how just... am I going to pay for this pizza without coin? Well, uh, we can work out of something. Okay, yeah, so it's. 70s music okay let's just put it like that it, it's 70s music and it it feels very out of character compared to the orchestral uh, stuff that you would hear in some of the other more formal movies uh, but if we leave the music aside and the cinematography the crispness of the there's color a si there's a scene where he's fighting on a bridge at night and there's a waterfall underneath uh that's turning obviously a mill and that's all you hear is the water and the swing of swords and the splashing of bodies. No grunts or uh, graphic effects. There's a certain zen-like quality to they get to many scenes and shots. And to that, to savor and drink in, for me, is exquisite. It's a beautiful scene done very well. Um, that said, um, we're always going to be more loyal to the manga, but this oh, is yeah. not a bad series I to watch if you get the full Japanese version because... It's no whole bard's apology of what it's doing. Oh no, they're they're not kidding. Although I, I will say this, uh, I did learn something very important from these movies that uh, that the human body uh, has far more than eight pints of actual blood in it, and it is contained barely uh, while under an incredible <laughs> amount of pressure. And so, you know, like should a person suffer even a modest cut? Uh, they will explode with the force of a fire hose and blood will go everywhere. So, mm. like, be ready for that. Uh, <laughs> However, the, the sword work, the the expressions, and oh. the portrayal of Ido Ogami onto film is exquisite. I think that the actor yeah. perfectly nailed the it. The actor did a stellar job and of even, carrying that silent dignity and that incredibly compressed, concentrated sense of purpose. Uh, he was not to be trifled with. He is moving in a direction, and anything that is an obstacle whoa, to that his path, path crosses yours. Whoa, whoa, be tighty, because this is an unstoppable force. And relatively a nice, his kid is rather nice. He, you know, um, a lot of people fall in love with his child in, oh, in the manga. Oh, that was adorable, because, you know, like, here's like the grown, narration. Even though he's it. eating little eggs. Every, everybody's oh, a cute little monster. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, all right, Grogu's eating frogs and stuff like that. But uh, this kid uh, is alternately uh, very, very sweet uh, and archetypal, which is a perfect contrast to the samurai who is, like, so periodically brutal. Uh, you, you yes. find yourself disarmed and returned to a sense of empathy and connection uh, by the presence of the child. That is why, uh, you know, this kid is so important to the series. Lone wolf and cub, you know, this guy and his surviving son who escaped assassination. He's on After the assassinations. And the two of them together make an unusual team, a team that you would never normally see, like a, a somebody that is just a toddler 
uh, and it barely comprehends what they're up against, but tries their very best to mimic their father and to, like, you know, do exactly what they're told because it's that important. And this carrying water force. to his that scene of carrying water to his father. His father is deeply wounded and recovering in a shrine. He tries to cup water in his hands. By the time he gets halfway there, it's gone out of it's dribbled out of his hands. So he has to inhale it in his mouth and hold it, and then dribble it softly into his father's lips. It is a scene well done, and I think it has a lot of purchase and emotion that carries through. That that was in the comic. It was also implied in the scenes, but it, I think it's that scene worked out better in the movie than it did in the comic. And the purpose for the mini missions: Why is he an assassin now? Uh, he is assembling funds to ultimately pay for his revenge. And not to give too much away, I, I don't want to give specifics, but these countless missions involve all kinds of intrigue and all kinds of compromising situations. With a quest to uncover the Yagu code. Exactly. To, to learn what they have been up to all along, to break their power. And the Yagu commit the fatal error, the arrogance. Uh, leads them to pour everything they have into destroying this one man to salvage their pride, their arrogance, their their certainty of their he own can, superiority. He can expose it all. We must do this. They're and when paranoia ends, works against them. Although, I, I will give you the one giveaway I'm giving here. The Lord of the Yagyu lives. However, he has been chastened. He is a changed man. He is not the person he was when he He's began this everything Because he lost all all of that power that he could have uh, you know, transformed into imperial control, all of that's gone. Everything else is destroyed. Ito Ogami has won, whether he lives or dies. He did what he came to do. And the man that remains is a better man. Uh, so, and yeah, yeah there's so, the, the but ultimate There lesson. you go in gaming. You can't get a better long-term oh. campaign with a quest with lots of side plots, derails, oh, and me meandering, so just letting the player go and do whatever and encounter whatever. It's so good. So Lone Wolf and Cub completes our trilogy of Samurai Movie Night. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, we tried to make some links to gaming. So let us know if we were successful or not. And uh, if you have some thoughts. And again, we'll put those uh, links where you can find these movies on we'll our wait. Facebook page. Yeah, we'll make them available to you. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us in our AM version. So We'll be on our way out, so we'll see you soon. In the meantime, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.